0: And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. The word of the Lord.
1: I love this Sunday because I get an extra hour to preach. I better not do it because in the spring I'm going to lose an hour, and you won't—you won't let me preach at all. We—we uh, we are in the midst of a series. We're continuing a series in the Book of Acts, uh, and we're looking at uh, just different conversion stories, much like our testimonies in the service. We're looking at various life stories of how the Gospel of Jesus enters into a person's life and transforms them. And so, my my goals for this series are are two. One is to explore the nature of conversion and understand better how the gospel changes a person, and invite people into that life of the gospel. So I address those who are not Christians and ask you to consider Jesus and consider His offer of a new life in Him. My second goal is is for us to learn how to share the message of Christ more effectively. And so as we're seeing various missionaries, apostles sharing the gospel— uh, we can learn from that, and we can, uh, we can grow in our own witnessing and evangelism, which is one of our emphases this year at Chatham. Okay, so today we're looking at the conversion of the Philippian jailer, this astonished prison warden. Missionaries Paul and Silas, as, as we read, uh, are put in prison for preaching the gospel. Uh, they um, in prison come in contact with this man who witnesses something so amazing that he has moved himself and his household to faith in Christ. So the question is, what surprised him into believing in Christ? What was so amazing? The obvious answer is the earthquake, right? So there's the dramatic earthquake and... And it's not just a regular earthquake, because it's very specifically shaking the shackles of the prisoners. And so it's a miraculous thing. You can't really explain that through natural means. And so that is pretty amazing. It must have been quite a miracle for him to witness. But I want to focus on, on the less obvious, but I think more relatable surprises in this story that allow us to understand how the gospel may enter into someone's life. So there are three surprises that I found in this passage besides the earthquake. First one is the singing in the stocks. The second one is the sacrifice of stain in the prison. And finally, the simple message of salvation. The singing in the stocks, the sacrifice of stain in the prison, and the simple message of salvation. Salvation, and this sermon is brought to you by the letter S, if you're (laughs) keeping keeping track. So when Paul cast out a demon out of this this slave girl, it shifted the the power dynamics in, in that particular city in Philippi. And the owners of the slave quickly realized that their income is now gone. So this, this girl that was demon-possessed and was able to, to predict future, to look into people's lives in a supernatural kind of way, demonic way, for sure. Now she can't do that. And all of a sudden they can't make money. And so they drag Paul and Silas to the magistrates, and they say these people are disturbing the peace, they are disturbing the Roman way of life, they need to be punished. Crowd gathers, they're all riled up, and, and before you know it, the magistrates are, are sending them to prison. They beat them, they put them in stocks, and they, the jailer actually puts them in the inner part of the prison. So that's, if you can imagine, no windows kind of the most secure part of the Roman prison. And it is there that we pick up our story and we read in verse 25, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Contorted by the stocks, in pain from the beatings, In the dark of the inner prison, they are singing. They're singing worship songs. They're singing hymns. They're singing church songs in the prison. They're worshiping God. One commentator put it that instead of cursing men, they were blessing God. Do you find that surprising? That a person who has just experienced injustice, cruelty, violence, pain, humiliation, all in the service of God, mind you, would sing praises to God. The other prisoners were certainly intrigued. They're paying attention, they're listening, because it is something that is unusual. On the one hand, from the world's perspective, this is very unusual. On the other hand, this is the point I want to make, is that it is the most natural thing for a Christian to do, is to praise God, is to worship him, even in these circumstances. Why do we sing praises to God? When we worship, much like we did a few minutes ago when we were singing, we affirm and connect to the reality of God's nature and God's presence we sing to express that we know him and we know what he is like. We sing to affirm that beyond all our experiences in this life, there is the underlying reality of God's existence and engagement. We sing words that express this ultimate reality. Worship is the unquenchable instinct of someone who has learned the great secret. The secret is that this world is not all there is and that God is going to make all things new. When the Holy Spirit whispers that secret into your ear and it fills your heart, the instinct of your heart is to praise God, is to connect with that reality, is to affirm that, is to to use words that describe what you have now found to be even more real than the pain of your body. Worship is looking beyond this world and at the same time seeing this world as it really is. Worship has, has, has a clarifying quality to it. We focus on what's real and it allows us to see everything else in that light and actually get a a grip on what's going on. We worship because we have been summoned by grace into the truest, most real life, what Jesus calls the abundant life, the life of God, the divine life, the participation in divine nature. When this life, our life, gets particularly difficult, a Christian's heart is even more drawn to God. That is, if that Christian is engaged in the life of God. Because if God is real, he is real in suffering. He is real in injustice. He is real in pain. To the world, Paul and Silas' singing in the stocks is puzzling. But to the Christian, it is the most natural thing in the world. Many of you who are here this morning are in pain. You are facing uncertainty in your life. Some of you have significant challenges today that you're wrestling with. You're not sure how it's going to come out. Some of you have been treated unfairly by someone else. And yet, you are here. You are here singing. You are here praising, praising God. Because God's existence, God's presence your relationship with him are the underlying realities of your life. And while cancer is undeniably real, so are the Spirit's comfort and the promises of healing and restoration. And you affirm that when you sing, when you worship. While rejection hurts deep in your heart, acceptance by the creator of all that exists moves you to rejoice. While this world has failed and hurt you many times, God has been faithful, and so you praise him. Spurgeon says that it's easy to sing in the daytime when you can see the music, when you can see the notes. But at night, it's much more difficult. And so at night, in seasons of suffering or doubt or struggle, we sing by memory you recite the faithfulness of God, you process what God has done and you remember and you recall and often God puts other prisoners with you in your prison to remind you what God has done. And so we sing and we praise him because he is real and we are his. Our worship is not just the affirmation of the reality of God's nature and presence, but it also is an invitation to others into that reality Paul and Silas are are, they're praying and they're singing in the hearing of other prisoners and the jailer it's really important that they are not doing it quietly they are not just processing what's happening and their pain and they're wrestling with God but they're doing that quietly no they're they're loud they're loud enough for all the prisoners to hear them They're loud enough for people to notice that there is something surprising here, that they're singing while they are in the stocks. And so the worship becomes an evangelistic challenge to the world. The worship of the church is a challenge to the world to consider this reality that we know to be true. We know the other prisoners were listening. Scripture says that. But I wonder if they stayed after the earthquake, remember, none of them left, right? So it's not just Paul and Silas that decide to stay. Nobody leaves. I wonder if all the other prisoners stayed after the earthquake because they were more interested in what they glimpsed in the songs of Paul and Silas than that what they knew awaited them outside the prison walls. They knew what was outside. They knew the kind of freedom that was there. But they got a glimpse of something so different and so unusual and and so real through the worship of the church, through the songs of Paul and Silas, that they decided to stay and to see what that was all about. Maybe they too began looking beyond this world. Now, I remember early in my Christian walk, I had an opportunity to to go on on a missions trip to Um, Other parts of Ukraine, a couple of small towns, uh, with a missionary team. And that missionary team had a particular strategy. They believed that worshiping uh, in front of unbelievers, being open with our songs, was part of how we are to do evangelism. So somehow we got this opportunity to go on a local TV station. And so think like local access cable kind of station. Um, half of us don't know what that is anymore, but those of you who do, you understand kind of the nature of that, of that kind of event. And so we were interviewed and asked all the normal questions. Why are you in town? It's kind of a small provincial town in Ukraine. And so we talked about who we were and, and what we believed, and we talked about scripture, and we talked about the gospel, and we talked about Jesus. And then we asked if we could just sing. And we just sang, and there was a guitar. It was not a performance. And some of us were not good singers. But we wanted to just worship. Part of the idea was, we're just going to worship God whom we know. We're going to worship him as we do, but we're going to let the world see it. And so we just sang a couple church songs with a guitar. There's something that is really right about that strategy, no matter how it may have seemed on TV that day, but there is something that is philosophically right here. Because God uses the worship of the church to draw people to himself. God does something in the hearts of others when they observe believers worshiping, when they observe believers at their most vulnerable, focusing on God, wrestling with God perhaps, reflecting what we think about him, what we've experienced with him, speaking his words back to him in faith, singing songs that we wrote to try to express what we feel, what we think about him. There's something about that that gives an opportunity for somebody to investigate who this God is and to to be summoned into that different kind of life, different kind of reality. This becomes a, uh, a, an example, it becomes almost like a display of, of our relationship with God, something that is accessible to others. God uses our worship to draw people to himself. Now, Before he became D.L. Moody's song leader, Ira Sankey, I, w- I went to Moody, so we learned a lot about Ira Sankey and D.L. Moody. Ira Sankey was, a, was I guess he was sort of a Christian evangelical celebrity of his day, He would accompany Moody and he would sing. He would lead worship at various events and and large, very large gatherings. And at that time, he was well-liked and people thought he he was an incredible singer. Before he started in that career, he was in the army. He was assigned to night duty in the Civil War. And while on duty one night, he just looked up and he saw the stars And his heart was overwhelmed with praise to God, and he just sang a hymn. Alone, or he thought he was alone, just just singing to God, worshiping under the night sky. Now, years later, Sankey was on a ship traveling across the Atlantic Ocean. And since he was now a famous singer, a crowd of people gathered and insisted that he would sing for them. Long journeys, remember, across the Atlantic And so Sankey obliged them, and he sang a hymn, one of his favorite hymns. After he was done, a man asked him if on a certain night during the war he was on night duty for a certain infantry unit. Sankey confirmed that he was, and the man said, I was on the opposite side of the war, and I was hiding in a bush near your camp with my rifle aimed at your head. I was about to shoot you when you looked toward heaven and began to sing. And I thought, well, I like music, and this guy has a nice voice. I'll sit here, let him sing, and then I'll shoot him. He's <laughs> not, not going to go anywhere. He's on duty. But then I realized, the man continued, what he was singing. It was the same hymn, he said, that my mother used to sing at my bedside when I was a child. And it's the same hymn that you sing tonight. He said, I tried, but that night I was powerless to shoot you. Ira Anki then told the man about Jesus, and he gave his life to the Lord. Amen. Worship, that openness of the believer before God, our expression of praise, no matter what the circumstances are, may draw others to the Lord. John G. Patton was a missionary to the New Hebrides islands in the South Pacific in the 1800s and he recalled a story of a woman who got converted by eavesdropping on his father leading his family in worship. Listen to Patton. He says, I have heard that, that in long after years, the worst woman in the village, then living an immoral life but since changed by the grace of God, was known to declare that the only thing that kept her from despair and from hell of the suicide was when in the dark winter nights she crept close up underneath my father's window and heard him pleading in family worship that God would convert the sinner from the error of wicked ways and polish him as a jewel for the Redeemer's crown. I felt, she said, that I was a burden on that good man's heart, and I knew that God would not disappoint him. That thought kept me out of hell and at last led me to the only Savior. It was something someone else was doing that changed the reality, changed perspective, it changed what she thought of God. It kept her alive. When we worship, we affirm the reality of God's presence and we invite others into it just simply by worshiping. We want to sing loudly not only because our hearts are overflowing with praise, but also because someone might hear us and be drawn to our God. There's a church in Chicago that meets very close to, to the park where the White Sox play. I, I don't know what it's called now. It used to be Comiskey. And in the church service on Sunday morning, the pastor would often say, we want to be louder than people in the park. We want to be louder than those who are cheering for their team. And there's something that is really right about that. We have something that's better. There's a much greater reality. There's much greater victory. There's much greater struggle that is overcome than in any sporting event. And so that ought to be reflected in our worship. And maybe somebody will hear. Maybe somebody driving by Chatham Bible Church would hear these voices and would wonder, what is going on that these people are so happy, they're so excited about that? And maybe God can use that to draw someone to himself. Our worship is particularly intriguing to the world when we suffer. Now, a suffering Christian who praises God declares that God is just as real now in the midst of the pain as he is when things are okay. God is just as deserving of our praise now as he ever is. God is the same now as he always is. Why should I not worship him when I am hurting? And such a response to suffering, it puzzles the world, and it can surprise others into considering and eventually following Jesus. So my call to you is to worship it's to sing. Is to pray out loud. is to do that in church. Do it outside of church. Do it at home at family worship and check if anybody's maybe creeping around by the windows and don't tell them to leave. Let them listen in. Be a worshipful Christian, a Christian that is free to express what we feel and give it to God and be engaged with Him in that way, whatever the circumstances of your life Maybe God is still God. Now that's the first surprise—the singing in the stocks. The second is the sacrifice of staying in the prison. Paul and Silas stay after the earthquake, even though their bonds have been unfastened and they doors are open. Remember, they can leave, and yet they stay. Look at verses twenty-seven and twenty-eight. When the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Amazing thing. I mean, this is a, must have been so surprising for the jailer. Under the Roman law, he's responsible for the prisoners. Prisoners leave... He has to pay the price. He has to accept the punishment that belongs to the prisoners. If he doesn't uh, provide security for the prisoners, he's the person that's going to get punished. He knows he's going to be executed. So instead of waiting for that humiliation to come, he simply says, I'm just going to kill myself now. But Paul prevents that death. Paul actually spares his life by saying, we're all here, we're all here. Don't worry, we're all here. You don't have to kill. There's nothing bad coming to you. Why did they choose to stay? They could leave. I mean, they're in the prison. They're not even supposed to be here. They're, they're not guilty of anything. There's nothing that, that, in their lives that deserves a punishment. They should not have been beaten, and later you find out that even under the Roman law, they were not supposed to be thrown in jail like that. And yet, the doors are open, bonds are fastened, unfastened, and they can leave, and they don't. They stay. And so the jailer, I think is asking the question, why do these men care about my life more than they care about their own? Much like worship, putting others first is another instinct of the Christian heart. When you experience God's love, particularly God's grace, when you realize that God loves you and that God is drawn to you, and God is pursuing you, and God is blessing you undeservedly, and God has actually sacrificed himself for you, when you get that, and God's love is poured out into your heart, it's the most natural thing in the world to then extend that love to others. You start thinking about others, and you start putting them higher, on the higher level than yourself, than your own benefit, your own interests. And sure, the jailer was cruel to Paul and Silas, I don't actually think he, he needed to put him in the stocks. I don't think he needed to put him in the inner prison. I think that was sort of his, his voluntary decisions here to make sure. And yet, Paul and Silas know that God loves them. In fact, God loves him as he loves them. There's no difference that God loves him with the same kind of love that he loves Paul and Silas. And throughout the history of the church, many people got surprised into following Jesus by the sacrificial lives of his followers. Uh, Rodney Stark is a sociologist, and he credits the rapid growth of Christianity in part, in part, to the early Christians' response to epidemics. So he does a study, he looks through the numbers, and he has projections. It's actually quite interesting to see. And he, he shows that the way Christians responded during the time of the plague in the 2nd century, 3rd century, actually changed the religious dynamics in the, in the world, in the ancient world, and, and propelled Christianity as a viable religion, a new religion at that time, but a viable religion in the Roman world. What Christians did was just so unusual. So at the peak of a great epidemic around 260 AD, Bishop dionysius of alexandria describes the christian response to the plague that's what he says most of our brother christians showed unbounded love and loyalty never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another heedless of danger they took charge of the sick attending to their their every need and ministering to them in christ and with them departed this life serenely happy for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead." Now, during the plague, wealthy pagans left the city. Cities were where the infection was, and so they went to their country estates. If you were not wealthy enough to leave, if you didn't have anywhere to go, you would simply avoid any contact with anybody infected, including your family members. So one of the things that was, was, was happening is that people wouldn't bury their dead. They wouldn't bury their family members because they were afraid. So Christians would bury the dead. People wouldn't take care of their own family members and nurse them back to health. So Christians did that. And so all of a sudden... What you have is a great contrast between how Christians respond to a crisis and how pagans respond to a crisis. And that stirs up the city. That is so surprising, that is so unusual, that it raises all sorts of questions for people. I wonder how history will remember our response to this epidemic. I wonder what we would be remembered for. Because it's very clear that in the early church, the first three centuries of the church, all historians agree that sacrifice and love of neighbor were the key qualities of the Christian church during numerous crises. What are the qualities that we are portraying now to the world? As the world looks at the church in this time of crisis, what are they seeing? Are they seeing sacrifice? Are they seeing love of neighbor? Are they seeing humility? Are they seeing hope that even though we die, we're okay? because God will take care of us. And among all people, we are the people who can sacrifice our lives because really we're not sacrificing much to begin with. I wonder also how different our culture would be if more Christians stayed or moved to bad neighborhoods or if more Christians took jobs and struggled in schools. That's the surprise of staying. You see, when you can leave, you don't. Paul and Silas could go, doors were open. They were not supposed to be there, but they stayed. Why did they stay? For the sake of others, for the sake of the prisoners, for the sake of the jailer. They stayed and they sacrificed themselves. They said, your life matters to me more than my life. And so I'm staying. They didn't know how it was going to turn out, but they stayed because they needed to be with others and to serve them. In the 4th century when Emperor Julian, I don't know how much you're familiar with, with the history of the Roman world, but there were several Christian emperors beginning with Constantine, and, and then there was Julian, Julian the Apostate, and he was trying to revert the empire back to, to pagan religion. And when he, was trying, when he was trying to do that, he encountered a problem. The problem was that pagan virtues were not on a level of Christian virtues. And so writing to a pagan priest, the emperor lamented. He said the impious Galileans, he's calling Christians impious Galileans, support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. He's basically saying, you guys, the pagan priests, you're not doing your job. Your people in need are going to the Christians and the Christians are serving them. The Christians are not just serving their own poor, they're serving everybody's poor. And that is so unusual, that is so different, he could never overcome that because people could see through his policies and say, yeah, but but Christians care for everybody. Lord, help your church today to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of others and to serve our neighbors and to put others before ourselves. And finally, the third surprise of this story is the simple message of salvation. Verses 29 and following, The jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. This this jailer is, is desperate to reconcile with a God who can shake the foundations of the prison and move his followers to sacrifice their lives for others. I mean, this is a, this is a crazy experience he's having. He's, he's face-to-face with this God. He doesn't know what to do. How can he be saved from him? Because right now, he's opposing his people. And so he asks a very simple question, what, what must I do to be saved? What do I need to do to reconcile with this God, to, to be delivered from this situation, to be spared here? What, what can I do? And the answer is incredibly simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. And people in your household, if they believe, they'll be saved. Very simple answer. Now later, Paul summarized the message of salvation in these words. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2. In my old church in Chicago, we actually had a a sign on the wall that had that verse. In case the preacher doesn't cover that, you know, it was for all to see because that is the simple message of salvation that needs to be proclaimed every time we gather. The jailer was asking what he must do to be saved. But when Paul and Silas spoke the word of the Lord to him and his household, they undoubtedly explained That nothing needs to be done. Nothing needs to be done because Jesus did it all on our behalf. So believe in the Savior. You see, what must tell you to be saved? Well, find a Savior and believe in Him. Find the one who saves you and then He will save you. Trust Him. It's Jesus that they worshiped in the stocks. And we have, by the way, in Scripture, in the New Testament, you have several passages where we, we, are, we are quoted the old hymns, the hymns that the church sang. And you can see that those hymns are about Jesus. When the church worshipped, they worshipped Jesus. In fact, that's what they were accused of by others, that they're worshipping this crucified person. And people would draw crude graffiti, graffiti on, on the walls in, in Roman cities because that was the, the, the center of their worship, their worship in Jesus. Jesus, who sacrificed himself for us, suffered for us on the cross. First Peter 2 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus, this Jesus that Paul and Silas worshipped in the stocks, Jesus sacrificed himself by staying on the cross for us. He gave up his life so we could be spared. He's put to death for our sins so we can be reconciled to God. Remember, there was an earthquake when Jesus was dying. Do you remember that? Matthew talks about that. But the earthquake did not loose the nails that kept Jesus on the cross. The earthquake loosed our bonds of sin so we can run to God and be accepted with him. Jesus was kept on the cross so we could be released from our prisons. Paul and Silas told the jailer, and his family that salvation is is a gift. It's to be accepted, it's just to be taken, to be welcomed, to be embraced, because Jesus has already accomplished everything in our place, in our stead, instead of us, in our place. So so we don't have to do that. They talk to them undoubtedly about grace. God's amazing grace to sinners. The gospel is so simple. God offers salvation by grace to those who believe in Jesus Christ. Look, I can do it in a sentence. It is so simple. It is so simple to answer the question what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus. That's it. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved because he's the Savior. But what does it mean to believe? Sometimes we overcomplicate that part too. Luther said that faith is the ring that clasps the diamond. Faith is the ring that clasps the diamond. The diamond is Christ. Faith simply is a housing for it. It's it's a place where Christ rests. And so when we believe, what we're doing is we're simply focusing on Christ. We are setting our heart on Jesus. We are putting our trust in Jesus. We are centering our life on Jesus. Jesus. I mentioned John Patton earlier, the missionary to the New Hebrides. When he was translating this passage, Acts 16, into the local language, he couldn't find the right word for believe in the local language. He just was not happy with anything that he found. It didn't, seem, it didn't feel to him that he was expressing the meaning of this rich biblical word to believe, this word for faith. But one time, he witnessed two men crossing a river over a rickety bridge... And one man confidently walked over the bridge and yelled from the other side, it's okay, lean your whole weight upon the bridge and you can cross safely. So Patton translated Paul's words to the prison warden's question, what must I do to be saved, as lean your whole weight upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Lean your whole weight on it and you'll be safe. You will cross over. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Have you leaned your whole weight on him? Do you trust him to bring you into a relationship with God? Is he the underlying reality of your life? Do you sing about him when your feet are in the stocks? I became a believer when missionaries shared the bridge illustration with me. That's how I was introduced to the gospel. Some of you know that. Some of you became believers through that. It's a simple illustration. It's a drawing that puts a person on this side, God on the other side. There's a chasm, and the the cross becomes the bridge from one side to the other. It's an illustration as simple as the gospel. I am right here. My sin keeps me here. I cannot cross over by myself. But God is over there. I want to be with God. God wants me to be with Him. What is the way to Him? It's the bridge. It's the cross. And so... As a teenager, see, I don't get to share my testimony like all of you, so I'm just going to work it into my sermons as much as I can. So by the time we're done with this series, you'll know all the details. When the missionaries shared that with me, it's very simple. I saw the cross as the way to God. I saw that Jesus did that for me, and I crossed over. I put my weight on that bridge, and I crossed over to be with God. And so can you, and so can you.